Welcome to a special podcast about universal health coverage, which is a themed issue in The Lancet in the September the 8th to the 14th issue. The issues surrounding universal health coverage, in other words, how an adequate standard of health care can be provided to all people, has never been more controversial or more politically relevant than today. So today, Friday, September the 7th, The Lancet publishes a special collection of papers exploring these issues. For example, addressing the evidence base for the effects of universal health coverage on population health, government involvement in universal health care, and how low- and middle-income countries in both Africa and Asia are making the transition towards universal health coverage. We also publish comment pieces by the former Minister of Health in Mexico, Julio Frank, but also the World Health Organization's David Evans. Also in the issue is a viewpoint by Professor Jeffrey Sachs from the Earth Institute at Columbia University, New York City, in which he sets out his thoughts for how universal health coverage can be attained specifically in low-income settings. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. This enormously important topic of universal health coverage, the September the 8th issue of The Lancet, is packed with information and different angles on this really crucial global health topic. You specifically have written a very interesting viewpoint, and you're looking at the journey towards universal health coverage specifically for countries in low-income settings. We'll go into some of the details of that in a moment. But just for background, being an expert in, in this field, can you remind us or tell us, if we don't already know, what is the motivation for this journey towards UHC, universal health coverage? What's the context? Well, first of all, thank you for uh, speaking with me, and I'm uh, honored to be part of this special issue. This is indeed a journey. It goes back a long ways. One could note that more than 60 years ago, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the core charter of the United Nations on human rights, put health as a basic right for all. And that set a standard and a goal for the world that everybody should have access to decent health care. The famous Alma-Ata Declaration of 1978, uh, there was supposed to be health for all by the year 2000. We arrived at the year 2000, unfortunately, not only uh, without health for all, but with raging pandemics, with the AIDS pandemic, with resurgent malaria, with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, with massive death rates in the low-income world and especially in Africa. It has been during the past dozen years, I would say, since the promulgation and adoption and pursuit of the Millennium Development Goals that we've been able to get the world focused once again on the idea that everybody has a right uh, to health Everybody has a right to access uh, coverage of basic health services, and that brings us uh, to uh, our topic and, and to the special issue. And I think it's important, isn't it, to actually define, and you mentioned this in your viewpoint, actually what we mean by universal health coverage. What, what does it mean? Because it can mean, obviously, I suppose the, the specifics of it can mean different things in different settings. What are, what are the minimum requirements, do you think, for universal health coverage? It is a matter of context because for wealthy countries, universal health coverage is going to mean access to more services than it will mean in low-income settings. In general, poor countries in particular, and often poor people in at least some rich countries like my own, the United States, lack access to even basic primary health care without the very fancy, high-tech kinds of health care for very complex uh, chronic diseases, 
basic health care of uh, immunizations or control of other communicable diseases not covered by immunization but by antibiotics or safe childbirth often elude a significant part of the population. We know that millions of children under the age of five, fortunately a declining number, uh, somewhere uh, now uh, around uh, seven to eight million children a year under the age of five die for reasons that are almost entirely preventable or treatable. Almost all of these deaths occur in poor countries, and almost all of these deaths uh, could be avoided or averted at very low cost. So when we think of universal health coverage, especially in developing countries, we're talking about basic health care and typically for the so-called category one diseases in the classification of disease burden that is widely used. That means communicable diseases. It means nutrition-related diseases. It means deaths and morbidity related to pregnancy and childbirth. There are, of course, category two, the non-communicable diseases that also very often can be treated at low cost, things that can be done with uh, hypertension, often which goes undiagnosed. Certainly behavioral related diseases uh, like uh, smoking can be and should be controlled widely. But primary health care for the poorest places in the world overwhelmingly means uh, addressing uh, the huge gap and the huge uh, disease burden that still comes from the communicable diseases, uh, unsafe childbirth and uh, chronic undernourishment. And intriguingly, in your Lancet paper, you, you talk about how often these two iron laws, to use your words, are often ignored when in the context of universal health coverage. They're ignored by analysts and uh, policymakers. Can you elaborate on that? There is not a good understanding, unfortunately, by wealthy people about the lives of poor people or the realities of poor countries. Many people say, well, if uh, poor kids are are dying, that's very sad, but these poor countries should get organized and and take care of that, and maybe they're just not serious about uh, their own health crises. What I point out is that poverty is a very deep trap when it comes to universal health coverage. It means, uh, in one case, with respect to the local delivery of services, that even very, very small service charges or user fees that uh, are often imposed in clinics, something like 50 cents or a dollar or a pound for a visit, can absolutely prevent even half or more of a local rural population from being able to access health services. Many households in very poor places have no cash income. Or even if there's a little bit of cash income, it may be under the control of a husband, but not the wife who's responsible for the caregiving for her children and and for herself. So the first principle is that when we charge, try to collect user fees to cover local costs. This has again and again been shown to have devastating consequences. The other iron law is that it's not simply a matter of will of low-income governments. Very poor countries cannot generate the public finance that is required even to manage a very rudimentary primary health system. 
Current estimates suggest that running uh, the most basic kind of primary health system uh, costs about fifty to sixty U.S. dollars per person per year. Now, mind you, in the rich countries, we're spending thousands of dollars per person per year for health care. But it is true in a very low-income setting, those uh, Category 1 disease burdens can be controlled, uh, substantially at least, uh, at very low cost. And even 50 to $60 U.S. in a public budget can uh, reach a tremendous amount of coverage. So people say, well, what's the problem? In that case, do it. But the shocking reality is that for a very, very poor country, even 50 to $60 per person for a health system is absolutely beyond the budgetary capacity of these countries. I would illustrate this by taking an example of a country, uh, say in sub-Saharan Africa, where the per capita income is $300 per person per year. This is typical of a very poor sub-Saharan country. A country like that may be uh, able to mobilize about 20% of the national income in tax revenues. And this is a, a point that the IMF, for example, would agree on. 20% of $300 per capita means that the government mobilizes about $60 per citizen per year uh, for the entire budget. But that has to cover roads, power, water, sanitation, schools, parliament, courts, security, as well as the health system. And the norm that has been set is that about 15% of a budget should be for the health sector. That's a stretch, but that's the stretch that should be made. Now, if you take 15% of the $60 per citizen per year, you have $9 directed towards the health sector, but you need 50 to $60 per person per year to run a rudimentary primary health service. So that means that there is a hard law, an iron law of, of extreme poverty, that there's a budget gap. And the budget gap uh, is on the order of something like $40 per person per year in that $300 per capita country. And I've been making the point for a dozen years, and many others make it as well, of, of course. And uh, since I was uh, chairman of the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health for the World Health Organization in the years 2000-2001, and during uh, the past uh, decade when I've been advisor to uh, Kofi Annan and to Ban Ki-moon, Secretaries General of the United Nations on the Millennium Development Goals, that it is uh, the, the meaning of the Millennium Development Goals that the world helps these poor countries to overcome that iron law, to overcome that financing gap with financial assistance so that they absolutely can run a primary health system to address exactly the universal health coverage challenge. In terms of your estimations then, what's the total global population, obviously an estimate, of the number of people, I realize these people are in different locations, in extreme poverty that need to be reached by universal health coverage. What are the overall targets then for donors, given that, as you've just said, governments of the poorest countries just aren't going to be able to fund the health system? Well, I think that we can use some rules of thumb, but of course the precise numbers come in the hard work of uh, actually uh, standing up a health system or scaling up uh, health interventions, as is done when we need to fund the 
Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, or the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, or other international finance efforts. The best rule of thumb that I would suggest is, is the following. There are about 1 billion very, very poor people. Extreme poverty uh, is about 1 billion people in the world. And if you take the illustration that I just used, there would be a financing gap for those 1 billion people of roughly $40 uh, per person. And I think it's in the right order of magnitude to say that the international financing need for health is therefore around $40 billion per year. I wouldn't uh, swear to it uh, not being $35 billion, though I think that would be light. It could be as much as 50 or $60 billion, but uh, we're basically uh, in, in the right range. Now, at $40 billion per year, uh, we can think about what that really means. Uh, is that a big number or a small number? Well, compared to our economies, it's, it's really not all that big. In the rich world, for example, there are a billion people also. Uh, so that means just $40 per person in the high-income world would fund the financing gap of uh, the $40 billion for the low-income world. And just $40 from each of us would make it possible to save millions of lives per year. It's, it's quite a remarkable bargain. Another way to put the same idea is that the high-income world has a combined income now of roughly $44 trillion. That is, if you add up all the high-income countries, the U.S. and Canada, Europe, uh, Japan, and so forth, it's about $44 trillion U.S. And so that $40 billion or $44 billion, whatever uh, it is precisely, is about one-tenth of one percent of the income of the, the rich world. That means about uh, 10 cents for every $100 of GNP, an eminently reasonable sum, and uh, one that is uh, absolutely achievable if, if we uh, just persevere. Now, we've made some progress, actually, in raising those funds. We're probably somewhere around 25 maybe $27 billion per year in development assistance for health right now. The gap is probably on the order of between 10 and $15 billion a year only. In other words, uh, 10 to $15 uh, from uh, each of us in the high-income world in additional funding would uh, do the job. Of course, uh, given that our governments are in budget squeeze mode right now, the record is not so spectacular for the moment. Indeed, there are some very worrying signs but given how much uh, our bankers in the world take home in mega bonuses, uh, how much we squander uh, in uh, wars, think about uh, the cost of the Afghan uh, war uh, to the U.S. budget of $100 billion a year by itself, more than enough to close the entire health financing gap for the poor countries. This is money that needs to be raised, can be raised, and I dare say, would, would hardly be noticed and would hearten the world, including the rich world, uh, to see the massive benefits that would be achieved by that. Just a quick follow-up thought on that then. So how do you see this gap being filled as we move forward, given the global economic austerity that we're all suffering at the moment? I would first point to the UK government, which, based on a wide uh, consensus, though one that is under strain uh, in, in the society, 
says, yes, the U.K. will fulfill its commitment, and it's a global commitment, uh, made by all high-income countries to 0.7% of national income for all kinds of development assistance. And for health, you see, I'm saying it's just one-seventh of that 0.7% of GDP total aid commitment. So the U.K., uh, even in this time of austerity, has been pushing forward bravely and boldly, I would add, to say, yes, we'll fulfill that commitment. And it's making important contributions, for example, to controlling malaria, which is a, a dramatic case of a really terrible scourge that has come down by about 40 percent since the middle of uh, the last decade, showing the kinds of dramatic results that can be achieved when we put the effort into it. And I also believe uh, the United States could do far more. Uh, We're not at 0.7% of GDP. We are, sad to say, right now at about 0.2 of 1% of GDP. Since the United States is a $15 trillion economy, every 0.1 of 1% of GDP is $15 billion. And if the United States put its effort into it, rather than squandering the money as, as uh, we're uh, doing in many ways, the U.S. could close a very significant uh, part of the gap as well. I acknowledge this is not where politics is taking us right now, but that is the tragedy. I've always believed that if we can show very concretely what can be done, how it can be done, what uh, can be demonstrated, we can mobilize these funds. And based on that principle, I was an early advocate and and, uh, a co-designer of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, for example, it has proven the point uh, that it's possible to save millions of lives by targeted, monitored, rigorous interventions. And this, I believe, is the strongest case to the public because the main resistance is, oh, you're going to waste our money, we'll never see it again, and it won't accomplish anything. And public health is an amazing field. It is inputs in and demonstrated outputs out. And this has been absolutely the case during the past decade. And since the public has been contributing to that, if we show the public all that has been accomplished, I think that this would really help to keep us on track to achieve uh, universal health coverage. Also to mention that in your paper, Professor Sachs, um, some very interesting analysis looking at the financing mechanisms for universal health systems, looking at private, public and private-public collaborations. No time to talk about it now on the podcast, but some excellent detail in the paper. Are you optimistic then, looking to the future, politically, as you said, economically, we're in a tough time. Your country, where you're speaking from, the United States, you've got an election coming up. I don't think Mitt Romney and Barack Obama are going to be talking about overseas aid budgets much between now and the 6th of November. How optimistic are you as we move forward, given that we have made some really good progress in economics and and, and global health in the past decade? But are the good days over, do you think? I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because throughout the world, the poor countries uh, really have the idea now. We need universal health coverage. We're determined to have universal health coverage. They're scaling up their own contributions. There are highly effective and already proven uh, interventions. And I would add something that we have not discussed, and that is that technology is getting better and better better diagnostics, uh, better preventatives, more effective 
vaccines, new ways to do things, new information systems uh, that make it possible to manage health systems far more effectively. So I think that the public push, the awareness, the proof of what's been done, the kinds of institutions that have been established like the Global Fund and like Gavi, the march of technology and information systems really give us a very powerful reason for optimism. The amazing part of universal health coverage is how close we are to achieving it. It may seem like huge gaps, and in many places, of course, uh, there's huge ground to be made up, uh, but this is all within our reach. I have to ask, finally, your paper talks about universal health coverage in low-income settings. In the United States of America, there is an election coming up. There has been this incredibly controversial domestic legislation about pushing through health care reform in the United States. How optimistic are you, obviously depending on how the result of the election goes, that health care reform in the United States can be attained. It is, of course, shocking that the richest large economy in the world is the last of the high-income countries to have universal health coverage. President Obama's reforms have taken us a step, an important step in the right direction. Uh, Thank goodness the Supreme Court uh, validated these reforms. While the Republicans say that they want to end these reforms, I doubt that they could do it even if they are victorious uh, in the November elections because the United States has a lot of inertia in its political process. Once something is in place and it's been hard to get it in place, I think it will also be hard to remove. So I think we've taken a step forward. Shocking how hard it's been. Of course, shocking how inefficient uh, in many ways the U.S. health system is, uh, this for-profit system that is so expensive the way that it's organized. So we need some pretty significant reforms of the health system, but there has been a step forward in coverage. And I doubt that that step is going to be removed, even if it is seemingly on the political chopping block right now. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Professor Jeff Sachs from the Earth Institute at Columbia University, New York City. Many thanks indeed for featuring in our special Universal Health Coverage Lancet podcast. Well, it's, it's my honor and great pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget, you can find out more on thelancet.com in the current issue of The Lancet. See you next time.